Hello, I'm Jim Wallace, Chair in Faith and Justice at the McCourt School of Public Policy and Director of the Center on Faith and Justice at Georgetown University. Welcome to the Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Eddie S. Glaude, Jr., the chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. Dr. Glaude is a former president of the American Academy of Religion and the author, most recently of the New York Times bestseller, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. This episode was recorded live before an audience at Georgetown University where Eddie and I had a frank discussion about race, religion, and what we all must do to heal our nation's most fraught divisions. As you will hear, these are not just academic topics for Eddie Glaude. We'll begin this podcast with his story about his own son being accosted by law enforcement. My baby came home. He was at Brown at the time. He came home and he was working, Jim, for this nonprofit around criminal justice reform. And he was so excited. He was going to lobby the state house in Trent. And he had that tight H&M suit on. And he was going to get in his little Honda Civic and he was going to the, to the thing. He was going to lobby. And he came home. And as soon as he walked in the house, my son's about 6'2". I was like, what's going on? What happened? And he said, Dad, I'm trying to park. And the police officer stops me. He said, you just going to drive by me? I said, no, officer, I'm just, I'm just trying to park. And he proceeds to cuss me out, Dad. And he tells me to go park over here. I go to move where he tells me that I got stopped again, Dad, by another cop. And, and then he starts yelling at me and cussing at me. And, and then he tells me to go park over here. And Dad, I got stopped again. Excuse my language. And he says, and this motherfucker asked me, who's my P.O.? He asked me, who's my P.O., Dad? And this 6'2 kid is telling me this, and he's tear running down his eye. And I'm trying to figure out, what do I do in this moment? You ain't never experienced that. How, how do I keep my baby whole? What does it mean to live in real time in the betrayal? It means that once again, I have to live with the risk that my baby might not come back. You see, so, so it's, it's not an abstract proposition. You see, this, this, is, this is the juxtaposition. It also involves the risk in having faith in this place. Because I, I, I believe in America the I, I, how can I, I'm going to put it in, in, in Ralph Ellison's language. I, will re, I refuse to cede the argument of America to these people. And when I, when, I re, when I refuse to cede the argument that is America to these folks, I take a risk of deep disappointment daily. This is, this is uh, Eugene O'Neill's Iceman Cometh. Yeah. It's got a, this is no chance saloon. People need their illusions. And the moment the illusions are shattered, I can't taste my liquor, hickey. This is what Eugene O'Neill was trying to get at in that play. Yeah. 
in many conversations like this in cities around the country, uh, sometimes there's a panel of people who are speaking to these questions. And afterwards, a lot of us would go out for a drink. And no matter how, um, how high a position in a university or city council or a mayor or whatever, that the black participants on the panel, no matter how high they have reached to be symbols of the American dream, after a few drinks, they all tell stories about their kids. It always comes down to how I feel different as a parent. And even in a place like Georgetown, I don't think Georgetown understands that white and black parents today live in different countries. We live in different countries when it comes to our kids. Because it's those stories that come out every single time after these great conversations. And maybe that gets back to your, uh, uh, the moderate people who think we're going too far, which was the focus of Doc King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Because here it's gonna be people who are, want to do incremental reform. And for them, for most white people, it's like, you know, well, that should be enough if your kids weren't at risk every single day. So because it's personal, and I don't think we still get that, even in liberal places, that black and white parents literally today live in different countries. When it comes to the most important thing in any parent's life is your kids. Right, and you know, I mean, oftentimes our kids aren't given the luxury of being kids. It's, it's not only that we live in separate worlds, it's what happens in those, sep in those separate worlds, Jim. We need to start talking about the intimacy of our hatreds. You know, I was thinking about this. I was writing about it. People knew who those men were who tied that fan to Emmett Till and threw him in the Tallahatchie River. They knew who those men were because they drank beer with them. They ate dinner with them. They went to the American Legion with them, perhaps. People know who stormed the Capitol and who hit, who, who, who attacked those police officers because they're their aunts and your uncles, your brothers and sisters, local police officers and fire persons, their coaches. I say this all the time. If gov former Governor Northrop in Virginia loved somebody who was black, if he really loved someone or was loved by someone who was black, he would have never put on blackface, ever. Mm -hmm. Our segregated lives mean that we are walking mysteries to each other. Mm -hmm. And hatred festers in the gaps. It grows in those intimate spaces where you don't know us and we don't know you. And boom, we find ourselves on this tragic. How can complicit religion become a redemptive part of the struggle. We're complicit. So what is for your Catholic history and background tradition? You can testify at Georgetown. Uh, but but how, how does religion move from just being complicit to being redemptive in the refounding? Uh, there's a moral issue at the heart of our politics. And the moral question is always, who do we take ourselves to be? Mm -hmm. Who do we aspire to be? And how might religion play a role? Remember that the prophetic key 
is always the minor key. It's never the major chord. It's always the minor key. And so our task is not to become court prophets. Our task is to bear witness to the truth in the face of the operations of power. And the moment we become court prophets is the moment we become Constantinian Christians. Um, some of us, when, when we finally saw this video, the George Floyd moment in our pandemic, and people hit the streets, I remember both you and I were a little cynical about what, what this was really a thing or not. We'd never seen so many white people in the streets. We talked about that. How do we imagine a multiracial democracy? That's the question. So what is the role of a new generation? What are you asking or challenging or requiring students to say, to be a part of that or not? Yeah, I mean, they're at the center of it, you know. Um, just to, really quickly, you know, I, I tend to describe this current generation as the catastrophic generation. You've been born in cascading crises. You've come of age in cascading crises. And so what's so distinctive about you is that you know the place is broken. You know it's broken. And so by virtue of that insight, you have the space to imagine, you know, otherwise, how to intervene. But there's no guarantee. Remember, Dylan Roof is not a baby boom. Most of the folks who are running around, one of the interesting things about the current Ukraine crisis is that we think Vladimir Putin saying that he's engaged in denazification. It sounds strange, but Ukraine is the global center of the neo-Nazi movement. Russia is at the center of a certain kind of global white nationalist imaginary. It's a collision happening between these forces in very interesting ways. It's not being reported, but we're seeing it play out on the borders, right? As black and brown folk are trying to get out of Ukraine and trying to get into other places, right? So it's a really fascinating story. So there's no guarantee that because you're young that you will reach for more progressive languages to respond to what is broken. Some folk are reaching for older languages to respond to what is broken. They're reaching for fascism. They're reaching for authoritarianism. They're reaching for that which can create order in the face of chaos. So what's distinctive about them is that they know it's broken. The question is, what choice will they make to intervene? You talk about what refounding would look like. It's a whole nother thing. So is America possible with just incremental uh, reforming, as they seem to think here still? Even the liberals think that, right? But you're talking about something deeper than reforming. You're talking about refounding. How would that make America possible? Well, absolutely. I mean, look, when we say that America is an idea, an argument, a fight, we have to ask, this, ask ourselves, what are we arguing over? What are we fighting about? It's these basic ideas that all men and women are equal. Right? The application of some basic principles that are off, that have been 
since our founding, shadowed by this belief that some people, because of the color of their skin, ought to be valued more than others. That white supremacy has overdetermined, distorted, disfigured uh, democracy in this country. So what does it mean to tinker around the edges of a place that's committed to that idea? So Lincoln can save the Union, can shatter slavery, but he still believes that white men are superior to black men, that white women are superior to black women. And so the situation that's at the heart, that's, that, that's at the heart of the rot of the polity isn't resolved, right? So we want to tinker around the edges. And what's interesting is that as folk tinker around the edges, people are dying. I have to raise my babies in the midst of it. You know? And so part of what we mean by refounding is what does it mean to discover in America, shorn of the belief that some people, because of the color of their skin, ought to be valued more than others. And how many times has France been founded? How many times have they started the calendar over? Right? And so part of what I say about instead of moving from first reconstruction to the second reconstruction, so we need a refounding. We need a third founding, a, a reimagining of our relationship to each other, a different kind of moral and social compact, not contract, right? Which announces our obligations to each other, shorn of this insidious idea that because of the color of your skin, you are owed something more than others. So yeah. James Baldwin said that lie is at the founding, but still at the heart of America. You call that the value gap, the value gap, this racial hierarchy that some people are less equal than other people, or what we would say, uh, some people are made in the image of God or not. I mean, that's the heart of the lie. All we've been talking about around here is the big lie of the election being stolen. And the people who are promoting the big lie of the, of the election being stolen are the ones who exemplified the bigger lie of racism. It's not just simply loud racists who are making this argument. There's a reason why in the history of American Christendom you have debates about monogenesis and polygenesis. You know, these people couldn't be of the same making from God. So we're gonna to try to give an account of different origins, as it were. But, but beyond that, you know, that Jan 6, January 6, man, they said stop the steal. And where were they talking? They were talking about Atlanta. Hmm. Philadelphia. Hmm. Milwaukee. Fascinating. Right? Stop the steal. Whose votes didn't count? And, and really the stop the steal is really a reflection, in my view, and I'm, I'm really interested in what you have to say, is a reflection of the terror and panic in response to the demographic shifts in the country that are impacting how our politics uh, take shape. Right? So, there is a sense in which those among us cling. There are some among us who cling to the idea that this nation must remain a white nation in the vein of old Europe. And Obama's election in 2008, right, threw everyone into, threw so many of them into a kind of full-blown panic, as well as those commercials on television with those racially ambiguous children eating Cheerios and the like, right? So there's this sense in which America doesn't look like it's supposed to look. And, it, and its politics reflects this. And so 
We're going to do a couple of things. We're going to address immigration. We're going to keep brown folk from coming from the southern part. Of it. We're going we're to begin to keep folk from voting. We're going to figure out how to rig the terms so that we can keep this nation white. In Michigan, my home, one of my friends there, he said, uh, they've got this new gerrymandering going on, redistricting. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take the number of elected black representatives from the state house and the Congress, take it down from 17 to 5. Happening right now in the state of Michigan. So the people who said uh, the election was stolen, the big lie, they're, they are out to steal the next two elections. Those same people. So it's, it is the elephant in the room for all of you policy people in every conversation in this town about almost any issue is the changing demographics of this nation. So to put it in a sentence, they're trying to prevent changing demographics from changing democracy. King said, Dr. King said in, in Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos Our Community, that for the most white Americans, equality is seen as a loose expression for improvement, a loose expression for improvement. That's the tinkering around the edges. Or equality is often thought about, or racial justice is often thought about as a philanthropic enterprise, a charitable gesture, something that you can give to me, right? And if that's the frame, then the frame is still defined by the belief that some people are valued more than others, that equality is your possession to give to me. You see, and who are you to give me equality? That doesn't make any sense to me on a certain level, right? And so there, there is this, there's this fundamental belief. How can, how can I put this? Um, there is natural liberty and acquired liberty. White folk have natural liberty, and the rest of us have acquired liberty. And that evidences itself in a different form of citizenship. Who can claim ownership of the country? And who should just simply shut up and be grateful? Shut up and play basketball. Right? And so there is this, in, in a genuinely multiracial democracy, those assumptions aren't circulating. They don't define the substance and content of what it means to exercise the benefit and burden of citizenship. Right? And so McConnell doesn't believe, I, don't, I, don't, I, would, I would contend, he doesn't believe in a multiracial democracy at all. But I would also argue that Joe Manchin doesn't believe it. Now, that makes some people uncomfortable, but I don't give a damn. Well, did you see where McConnell had this slip where he talked about, he said, well, voting turnout was, was pretty good for African-Americans, almost as good as Americans. It's Freudian all the way. Historically, as you point out, white people in power wanted to do two things, make it harder for black people to vote, make it harder, and then in the end, not count, or miscount or recount their votes. Now we see this happening all over again. Now, historically, uh, your parents and grandparents fought all this and sometimes thought they won. And here we are again, fighting the same battle over again. Feels Sisyphean, doesn't it? it? It is exhausting, but you know, I come out of a blues people, a blues tradition. B.B. King's Nobody Loves Me But My Mother and she could be jiving too. There, there's, there's no naivete about this place. The great scandal in black life, the great scandal that we never want to reveal is that we really don't trust you. We really know who you are. 
And the great scandal of American life is that you're afraid that we're going to tell the world. Oftentimes, we will normalize Dr. King's invocation of nonviolent love and lose sight of how miraculous it actually was because we normalize it. There's a deep-seated suspicion about the moral character of the country, given the longstanding you know, treatment, the historical record. So, so what I've come to believe, it's Sisyphean. You ask yourself, how do, you, how do we keep rolling this boulder up the hill? And then I, I find myself reaching for Talib Kweli's, well, it's not the end. It's not getting the boulder up the hill. It's the beautiful struggle itself that becomes the aim and end, right? right? So otherwise, otherwise, I would give up because um, my baby is having to go through this. I went through this. And Jim, one of the things that we don't talk about when it comes to, say, the violence that killed Reconstruction, Reconstruction didn't just collapse, it was murdered. Because it was working. Right? It, and so, one of the things people don't say is that we talk about the emergence of the Klan, but once 1871 Congress holds its hearings, Klans disperse, the violence becomes micro. Mm -hmm. They are doing, they are, they are assassinating poll workers. They are attacking activists in their homes. So, the fact that they shot Megger Edwards in, his, in the carport, that goes back to the 1870s. That particular kind of micro act, right? It's not some organized violence, right, in some sense, right? So there's, there is a kind of daily terror aimed at policing black folk in the exercise of citizenship. Right? And so there's, there, there's a reason why these folks are showing up at school bo boards right now. There's a reason why, there's a reason why they're, they're, they're doing exactly what they're doing, because it's having an impact downstream, so the people who would get excited about politics aren't going to run upstream. And, and now uh, what they're doing at the school boards is uh, they always pick on something, an acronym or a slogan. Now it's critical race theory, right? So you got mothers in Loudoun County near here in Virginia who were credited for voting against Trump now are afraid their kids might be told the truth about American history. And, like, and I'll just tell you, when you have Vincent Harding helping you teach your kids and you see it does them a world of good, and these parents are afraid of their kids learning this, so... Critical race theory, they never knew what critical race theory was. It's not being taught, but it won an election here in Virginia. So they pick on these things. So the latest is uh, it's become an acronym and a target. I had an opportunity to talk with, I think it's on, on Morning Joe, the guy who was behind the attack, on organizing the attack around critical race theory. And he even said explicitly on Twitter what CRT was aimed what its objective was. It was supposed to be a catch-all phrase for everything that they didn't like, right? Um, so it's very difficult, Jim, to argue with people about CRT when you know that they're arguing in bad faith. What arrests American progress more than anything is this toxic combination. It is the loud racist, the loud bigot, the Tucker Carlson type, and the moderate liberal 
who worries that we're going too far. So the folks in Virginia who, who were suddenly in arms about critical race theory were the ones who are worried, not so much about the demographics, they're worried about us going too far. Abe Lincoln was alive when the 13th Amendment was ratified. The congressperson who helped author the 13th Amendment was against the 15th Amendment, which gave us the franchise. Walt Whitman's Leave of, Leaves of Grass is an abolitionist poem in its first edition. But by the time you read the last edition, he's redacted all of that out because he didn't believe black people had the capacity to take on the burdens of citizenship. He thought we were barbarians and baboons. So he was anti-slavery, but because he believed in this distinction between black and white, we couldn't go too far. You see the move? And so a lot of this around CRT is just an excuse right. so that people can pump the brakes because we don't want to go too far. We don't want to give up our schools. We don't want to be demographically displaced and historiographically replaced. The Soul of a Nation is a podcast from the Center on Faith and Justice at Georgetown University. Please follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a rating and review to increase our visibility and share the podcast with your personal and professional communities. You may also go to faithandjustice.georgetown.edu to learn more about our work to advance a deeper integration of religious and moral values in society and civic life. While you are there, please subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, God's Politics, a commentary about the most profound moral and ethical issues and choices beneath the issues of the day.